imagine, it's hard to do, but imagine a world without light. Imagine a worship service without light. In our world, we can't imagine it because uh, we are so used to light and creating artificial everything with light. Light sets moods. Light gives life. Light is safe. We need the light. Uh, Ten years ago, I I moved, our family moved, up to uh, Edgewood, uh, up in the hills. And um, we were right across the street from Edgewood Park, and I was invited into a running group, and foolishly, I said yes before I knew two things. One, the caliber of runners that invited me in, uh, they were all ultra, ultra marathoners. And two, more importantly, the time they ran, uh, 5 a.m. Uh, on Thursday, Tuesday mornings. The third thing that I didn't understand is where they ran, Edgewood Park, where there's no light, at 5 a.m. when there's no light. I said, how do you do that? And they said, well, you wear a headlamp. My first run, and I've been running for decades, uh, I fell down multiple times. I can't, even with my headlamp, I came back bloodied. And I knew Edgewood Park. I'd run in Edgewood Park for years prior to joining that running group. But it was a whole different experience running in the dark. Now, can you imagine uh, what it's like walking through life like that? It's one thing to go on a run and stumble and fall, but imagine in life not having light to guide you, the wisdom of God, the direction of God, to know where the pitfalls are, where the dead ends are, where the danger zone is. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet, and what? A light unto my path. Can you imagine what would happen if the second week of that running group I showed up, and in pitch dark, you know, we'd meet outside a house, and it actually was a great experience. Um, but I showed up with no headlamp the second week, and people said, well, where, where's your headlamp? Why do I need a headlamp? Because it's dark. Well, imagine me going, it's not dark. No, really, it's dark. No, it's not dark. It's light. I'm fine on my own. Uh, that's the environment Jesus steps into in John 8. A complete dark world. And it's the worst kind of darkness, everybody. It's religious darkness. And he steps into the core, the leading religion uh, of his people that God put on the earth to be a light to the nations. We'll see that in a minute. And Jesus said, you're walking in darkness and I'm the light. He, He will see in a minute, he usurps a ceremony that pointed to him and he steps up in the temple in the middle of it and says, this is me, I'm this light. And they completely deny it. Not only denying that he's the light, but they deny that they're walking in darkness. The absurdity of creation to point to our creator and say, we don't need you. Why don't we turn up the lights and let's open our Bibles to John 8 and walk into this incredible passage. John chapter 8. You've turned your Bibles there. And by the way, this morning, that's our keynote, right? Um, we'll have some passages up here, but we're going old school today. Here's our keynote, right? So if you didn't bring your Bible, I want to encourage you to. And if you don't have one, grab a pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take the pew Bible home. And uh, it, will, it will change your life, I promise you. And open to John chapter 8 and grab your message notes. And uh, Happy New Year. Uh, I'm glad you're here. I, I'm part of tons of different pastor groups, but today I'm going to boast 
when, you know, everyone responds in the pastor group of what happened on Sunday. I'm going to respond, yeah, but at least 25% of my congregation were so hungry for the word of God, they showed up a half hour early (laughs) to worship. (laughs) Thank you for giving me that boast. Um, So John chapter 8, everybody. Um, And while it's been five weeks since we were in this series, we left Jesus in John 7 in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles, and we just said, stay there, and we went into this Advent series. Now we're back in John 8, and Jesus is still in the temple, and it's still the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Jews, just to remind us, the Jews had three major feasts, and if you were in a 70-mile radius in the first century of Jerusalem, you had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this. So Jerusalem is blown up with people. It was the Feast of Passover, and we'll get to that at the end of Jesus' life. The Feast of Pentecost, that's where the church was born during that feast. And now this one, the Feast of Tabernacle. This was the feast that commemorated the Israelis or the Israelites uh, in their journey through the desert where God provided for them all along the way. And so they, every year, they still do. They call it the Feast of Booths now, um, where they celebrate, the Jews do, God's faithfulness through the desert. Uh, last time we were together, five weeks ago, at a key portion of the Feast of Tabernacles, the high priest comes and he pours water over the altar to commemorate when Moses struck the rock and water came out. God provided water. And at that point, Jesus stops the ceremony and usurps it because he can't, he can't stand it. Remember Jesus, the medium is the message. He feeds 5,000 people and says, I'm the bread of life. He, uh, he's with the woman at the well and says, I have living water you have no idea about. The priest pours the water over the uh, altar and Jesus stops everything in John 7, verse 37, and says, come to me. I have living water. You will fully be satisfied in me. Um, And then we went to Advent. But Jesus is still in the ceremony, in the Feast of Tabernacles. So um, John inserts, there's some question about this that we won't get into, but this story of the woman caught in adultery in John 8, and it goes right back into that feast. So Jesus is still at the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Very important that you understand they're celebrating... um, God's faithfulness through there. Turn to page two and let's look at the location because this is really important. Location. Didn't think you'd think on 2016, did you? This is good. This is good stuff. The location. Look at verse 20 in your Bible. Where did he say this? This is very important because with Jesus, the medium is the message. His words are powerful, but his life is, gives a context for that. Look at verse 20. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. John, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wanted us to know that. He wanted us to know where he was. Look at the diagram I put in your notes. Even the way God God created, he was the architect of the temple. Look in your message notes. The way God designed this shows his heart. The largest part of the temple uh, was the the, uh, court of the Gentiles, or what we know as the court of the nations. Because God wanted Israel to be for the whole world a light to the whole world. So the largest part of the temple was the court of the nations. This is where the, um, the Jews set up their tables to sell their goods. And this is where Jesus turned over the tables and said, what are you doing? You are blocking the people from getting to know about God in the court of the Gentiles. See the women's court? There was only a place where women could go so far, and Jesus obliterated that and liberated women in so many ways. We'll see that in this gospel. But that's where Jesus is, in the women's court, right there in your notes. 
Uh, in the women's court, just so you know, the historians tell us there were 13 different receptacles, uh, bell-shaped, trumpet-shaped, actually, uh, wide at the mouth and then narrow at the bottom. They would uh, receive the offering. It was the most populated place of the temple, so that's where the Jews put their offering baskets. And that's why they calls it the treasury in your notes. But there was something else that the Jews put out during the Feast of Tabernacles in the women's court. Um, candelabras. Four of them. They weren't small, puny ones like this. Uh, historians tell us the candelabras were 20, 30 feet high. Think of this floor to the beam. Candelabras. They were fueled by oil. And at night, they would light at dusk the candelabras during the Feast of Tabernacles to remind the Jews that God was the pillar of fire at night that led them through the desert. So maybe, I'm just imagining here, we don't know what time of day it was, but imagine this is where Jesus gives this famous I am statement. There's seven of them in John. They're listed on page one. Uh, I am the light of the world. You can imagine now the context. The historians even talk about these candelabras, and one of them said, and one historian described it as a stunning vision, uh, like a diamond in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. The temple ground looked, uh, in my vernacular, like floodlights came out of the temple and flooded the city across the perimeter walls. Every night they were lit, the the temple became a symbol of the fire, the pillar of fire at night. And once again, Jesus makes an audacious claim. We'll get to it in a minute. But he usurps the ceremony to make this claim. Because the medium is the message. All those Old Testament practices from Passover to everything. Well, we celebrated communion in our first gathering. Uh, it all points to Jesus. And that's what we're going to see here. Now, look at the assertion. And we've said in this story, as we're studying the book of John, uh, you either crown Jesus or you crucify Jesus. There's no middle ground. Um, If you have um, intellectual integrity, you look at his claims, you either adhere to them and go, gosh, you are Lord, I do follow you, or you go, you're crazy, you're a lunatic, or you're immoral, you're a liar, You, you completely came and lied, you're a human being with a messianic complex. There's no middle ground. And the reason I say that is because of what we're going to see today. Look in page, uh, verse 12 of John chapter 8. When Jesus spoke again to the people, by the way, he's speaking again to the religious people. That's the context. He's not speaking to people who have no, view, uh, no knowledge of God. This is, these are the religious people. And the people that are most upset with him are the religious expert who knew this book inside and out, at least the Old Testament. They knew all the laws. They knew it all. They of all people should have known that Jesus' claims were true. Look what he said. So the candelabras, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. Now don't hear what Jesus didn't say. Okay, He didn't say, I am a light of the world. He didn't say, I am a light in Jerusalem. He didn't say, I am a light to the Jews only. He didn't say, I've come to shed light on who God is. A lot of people claim that. This is an audacious, exclusive claim. I am the light 
for the whole world. You'll see it again in John chapter 9, verse 5. He says it over and over again. I am exclusive. No one is in my league. Now, to make this claim in any other arena is offensive, actually. And it's offensive, we'll see, even in John 8. Uh, when I was a, first a youth pastor in 1990, I started my career, if you will, in church ministry. I was a missionary before that to, um, to athletes at UCLA. But now I'm, a, now I'm in a, a church in Marin County, 60 miles north of here, a, a severely, severely unchurched county. Uh, some say one of the most unchurched counties in the world, worse than even on the peninsula, the amount of people that go to church in Marin, any church. So I got there, and there was a gathering of youth pastors of smaller churches, and, and I thought, well, I want to get to know people. And I went, and uh, at the gathering, I'll never forget this, in San Rafael at this church, this youth pastor uh, in Novato, our church is in San Rafael, Marine Covenant, pulls me aside, and he says, so you're the new youth pastor at Marine Covenant? I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, I kid you not. He goes, you're not needed in Marin. I go, I grew up in Moran, okay? That's my home. And I grew up not knowing Christ. If anyone knows that Christ is needed and more pastors are needed, I knew, right? I still have baggage from 18 years of not walking with the Lord because no one told me about Jesus. I go, I'm not needed here? He goes, and this is what he said, I am the shepherd of this county. He goes, we don't need you here. Can you imagine? We laughed, but it was offensive to me. You are the shepherd of the county? God's anointed shepherd? Imagine you're a lawyer, and yet you're at some peninsula lawyers gathering, and you make an announcement. Excuse me, I am the lawyer of the peninsula. All of the legal cases, just bring them to me. Or I am the doctor. None of you are needed. I have arrived. Okay? And Jesus doesn't have piousness like that he's just speaking the truth and we'll see as you interact in john 8 people try to define him we try to define him as humans jesus will not be defined by anybody by anybody and that causes trouble so what compounds it though is this that uh, even the jews knew when the messiah comes he will be called the light of the world if you're taking notes isaiah 42 verse 6 Uh, I, the Lord, have called you, talking about the Messiah, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you. I will make you to be a covenant for the people. And here it is, and a light for the nations. The rabbis knew this. They taught when the Messiah comes, he will be robed like the sun. Isaiah 49, 6. I will also make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is a bold, bold claim. And the reason I go off on this is I've heard so many times, and maybe you have too, and especially with our students, you'll hear this, Jesus never claimed to be God. No, he did claim to be God. He claimed deity right here in John 8 using this I am statement. Or you look down in verse 58. Look at verse 58, everybody. It gets even more bold. At the end of the interaction, I almost don't need to preach this morning because... um, just let Jesus talk. I mean, just read John 8 and look at his claims. It, w- it will change your life. In verse 58, Jesus says, uh, Very truly I tell you, that's where we get the word amen from, by the way. Literally, he says, Amen, amen, I tell you. Before Abraham was born, and then he takes the name that God gave Moses in Exodus 3 when Moses asked, What if 
what am I to tell Pharaoh who you are? I am. I am. To the Jews, Moses was everything. And to use that name for yourself, uh, that's when they pick up rocks. And this interaction, you'll see, gets more and more violent. We'll see sarcasm. We'll see uh, racial profiling. We'll see um, really low blows. With the, the religious people, why is it that religious people are the most violent? What is that? Finally, they're like, let's kill him right now. And they pick up rocks to stone him. What does it mean that Jesus is the light? Well, I know in my life, like, he's the light of truth that dispels falsehood and belief. How do I know what I'm going to latch my values on? How do I know what I'm going to link my priorities to? I don't want to link my and build my life on a lie. I'm banking everything on this. Not only, not only that sounds too nebulous, my marriage is built on truth. My parenting is built on truth. Uh, my career is built on truth. The way I manage my body is built on truth. How I define myself is built on truth. Where do I get that from? We each reach for a definition on a, in a priority on how we're going to drive those things. Jesus says, I'm the light. I'll shed light on all those things. Um, he, he's the light of wisdom that, gives dark, that dispels the darkness of ignorance. The light of wisdom. How do you know when to take the next step? There's been a crossroads really around three different areas. And these are the three biggest areas people make or break their lives. Who will be your master? Who will, what will be your mission? Who will be your mate? Who will be your master? Who will you follow in life as your final authority? What will be your mission? Not just your career. That just is the platform for you to live out your mission. Who will be your mate? Will you do that alone? Who is the community, if it's a husband or wife, or if God calls you to singleness, who is the community you choose to do those things in? I have found in my life the light of wisdom from Jesus helps in all those areas dispel ignorance. Jesus is the light of holiness that exposes impurity. I am an impure, fallen human being. And Jesus uh, came in one of my darkest times when I was 18, in the middle of a party, uh, late at night, a big fraternity party, and just said, come here, let me shine light, and pulled me out of darkness. But as I've walked through life and continue to be tempted and swayed in different areas, it's the light of Christ that shows me this is impure. Let me bring healing to this area. And as my wife taught me, this is worth writing down, and it's not even from me. Whatever God brings to the light, he wants to heal. Whatever God exposes to the light, as embarrassing and shameful and painful as that is, the reason it's come to the light is not because God wants to condemn you. God doesn't condemn. He wants to heal you. He wants to bring healing. And so we pray for our daughters all the time. God, bring to light any secret sin, any deeds of darkness. Expose them so they can have healing. And then the light shines. Jesus is the light of life that dispels death. Uh, life gets darkest at the end of your life. There's so much fear and pain and, and not knowing still, even for followers of Christ, what's on the other side. And Jesus gives peace in that place. So Jesus is very clear, this assertion. Do you see how bold it is? 
Do you see how far-reaching it is? Not just far-reaching as far as for the whole world, but throughout time and eternity. As a matter of fact, we were reminded in our prayer time at 1030, uh, Kevin prayed and reminded us that in Revelation, there's no lights, there's no lamps, there's no artificial lights in, the, in heaven. Because Jesus is there. We don't need the sun anymore in heaven. Because Jesus is there. He's the light forever. And he never goes out. Never. That's good news, isn't it? Yeah, it's really good news. And if you're checking Jesus out, I want to tell you, if that's the claim. That's why we gather. That's why I think God has blessed this church for 65 years. Because we've always been centered on Jesus and had a very high view. Jesus is God. He is to be worshipped. We are surrendering to him. But it wasn't good news to everybody in that day. Look at page 3, the reaction. Some people uh, followed him, verse 30. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. People were going, yes, all right, the Messiah has come. But the religious people, uh, they wanted to crucify him. They hated it. And there's some reasons about this. Look at verse 13. Jesus has this bold claim, and you'd think they'd be happy. You'd think they'd be going, thank God, finally, we don't have to walk in darkness anymore. But look what creation says to the Creator. You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony's not true. In our three-pound brains, we know much more than you. You're wrong. And we face that still to this day, right? People think about God, and there's a million views about Jesus. Uh, why do they want to crucify him? Why do they disagree? There's a couple reasons. I think this will be of value to all of us. Some reasons why people don't accept Christ as God, as Lord. The first one's ignorance, and I see that in here. Ignorance. Three times Jesus used this as a statement, you just don't know. Look at verse 14, everybody. You don't know me. I'm sorry. Look at verse 14. He says, you have no idea. Look at verse 19. You don't know me. You don't know my father. Look at verse 55. You don't know him, talking about the father. It's so amazing to me as I travel around and, and how many people just use unbelief as their end all to any argument or any even conversation. It's just odd for me as a pastor in my profession. I try to actually hide it, not because I'm ashamed of it, but because when I get exposed, people do weird things. Like in this running group, right? They invited me in. They had no idea what I did. And on that first run, I can, I can, it's, that was, this is 10 years ago. I've run miles, thousands of miles since then, over 10 years, all over the world. But I can take you to the very spot where this question came out. So what do you do? I just, I just shake my hand and go, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't ask. Because it's going to ruin the conversation. It's going to get awkward. This is just going to be terrible. I've had people, literally, when I say what I do, throw their drink out and hide it behind their back. People suck in their cigarette as if to swallow it. As if they're, I mean, I'm like, what is it? You know, and so... So I said I was a pastor on this run, and... Um, I kid you not. I just, you know how awkward this was in silence before I came up? There was like a minute and no one spoke. And I just said, don't say a word. Let it sit. And one guy broke the silence. And said, I, 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 I've, I've never met a real pastor before. What, what do you do? You know, and it just it goes off. Um, 
But as I've interacted with people and talk about Jesus, people go, I don't believe that. Well, why not? Have you ever really investigated who Jesus was? Well, I've, I've investigated enough. I, I heard someone say something. and Oh, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. Really? Have, have you read it? Have you done a thorough study? I mean, we're banking your whole eternity on this. His claims are that bold. Isn't it worth the intellectual integrity of humbling yourself and looking at the claims? The first reaction, the reason why people like, no way. These are the religious leaders. They should know better than anybody. Ignorance. Unbelief never has enough proof. Never. And these people had it all. They had his words. They had his works. They knew of miracles. They, some of them saw it. They sent people to arrest him. Remember this in John 7? And the guards came back like, where's Jesus? Uh, we actually believe him. What do you mean you believe him? No one ever spoke the way he did. They had all this evidence, his effect on people, and yet they still claimed ignorance. Unbelief never has enough proof. And if that's you here today, you're so welcome here. I want to encourage you to push through that and at least give it a good look. We have tons of resources here for you. At least you can say, I I, I investigated, I I applied the intellectual integrity to this to see who Jesus is. Second reason some people uh, deny Christ is a lack of perception. Look at verse 15, a lack of perception. And by this I mean Jesus came out of eternity and, and really came to call us to a whole new, grander vision, not just from cradle to the grave, but really to live from grave into eternity as our priority. Okay, And look in verse 15. Jesus said, you're judging by human standards. You're judging by human standards. People do that today. They did in his day. Like, oh, you can't be the Messiah. You're homeless. You can't be the Messiah. You speak too boldly. You, You heal on the wrong day. And Jesus is like, that day was created for me. He just goes on and on and on. Look at verse 23. Look what it says. This isn't on the screen. It's in your Bible. You're from this world, Jesus says. You have a whole wrong perception, and your wrong perception has created a misaligned value system where you think that following me will ruin your little life on earth. Jesus didn't come to ruin your life. He came to illuminate and make you the best version of you possible. It gets worse. This is really, really gets worse. Look at verse 19. Because of their lack of perception, Now they get really, they just go out of bounds. Verse 19, Jesus is talking about the Father, and they say, Oh, Father? You want to talk Father? Where's your Father? Now they were either talking about one of two things. Uh, They were either talking about the fact, I think this is it, that uh, the rumor was Mary had Jesus out of marriage. That she lived in a Roman-occupied village, and that Mary and a Roman soldier uh, had relations, and that's how Jesus was born. The reason I say that is because down in verse 41, look at this. These are people saying this about our Savior. Look at their response in verse 41. We're not illegitimate. This is what Jesus faced his whole life. At some point, and this is why I'm not Jesus, I at that point would have said, I've had it. I put up at this point with 32 and a half years of living on this stinking earth. I was the object of worship from every angelic being, every tree, every bird that tweeted and twerked and did whatever. It was all worship for me. And you call me illegitimate? Enough! And I would have decimated him. 
I don't know why that's funny, but <laughs> it gets worse. In our culture, as dark as our culture is, we have certain racial terms you just don't say. People get fired for them, right? They get pers- TV personalities get thrown off the air. They use one in verse 48. You're a Samaritan. In that day, it was as bad as the worst racial slur in our day. You're a half-breed. And you're demon-possessed. People keep trying to define Jesus. They still do this day. We do that. And Jesus, my friends, will not be defined. Jesus is beyond definition. And look what he says. Uh, He says, you don't know me. You don't know my father. If you knew me, you'd know the father. And finally at the end, they're like, we're done talking. We're just going to kill you. And in verse 59, they pick up stones to throw stones at him. Why? What is it about the name of Jesus that's so offensive? I won't go into my history, but my most dangerous moments in life, uh, knives pulled on me, uh, people pushing me around, um, really dangerous moments were because of Jesus in the name of Jesus. You can be in a conversation and say, oh, I love God, and people are like, oh, that's cool. I'm spiritual, that's cool. You mentioned being a follower of Jesus. It's not cool. It's just not. Why? Look at the reason. Verse 44. And we're going to wrap this up and get back to worship. Our enemy in this church is not any other ideology or any other uh, alliance or any other people group. Our enemy is Satan himself. I know that might sound weird on the peninsula in 2016 where we have a highly intellectual group that I'm speaking to. But look what Jesus said. Again, are we going to allow Jesus to be our authority? Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. If you want to know what those are, we'll get to it in about a month and a half uh, in John 14:6. Their father's desires to steal, kill, and destroy. That's why when we gather as a team early in the morning, I love the team I get to do this with. We pray for you in your first waking moments against the enemy, causing conflict, discouragement, hopelessness. Do you really think that just comes from you? Do you really think it's just your poor self-esteem? No. The enemy is lying to you. After the first service, a couple came to me, and they were, um, they were out late last night. There was two couples and said, we weren't going to come to church. We just felt like we got to bed too late and da-da-da, but we fought our way here, and we're so glad we were here gathering with the body. The, the enemy is the, 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 the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. And look at this. Never forget this, third row people. I love these guys. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Look at the next verse. I put this in your notes. We're going to land the plane right here. Why do people oppose Jesus? 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It's worth memorizing, actually. The God of this age has blinded the minds. Interesting metaphors, right? How do you blind a mind? Has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And what's the effect of that? So that they cannot see, what's the next two words? The light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Every time you're drawn to the light, you will be opposed. 
whether you're a follower of Christ or not. So I want to be very clear at the outset of 2016. What do you do with the light? You don't admire it. You don't sit back and even study it. You follow it. You follow it. In the desert, the pillar of light at night, the fire, moved because Israel had to know where to go. At the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus stood up in the candelabras and said, I am the light of the world, he said, I'm going somewhere. Follow me. I wonder where God's calling you in 2016. Around the three areas that matter most. Where is God calling you when it comes to who your master is? In your relationship with him. Follow the light. Where is God calling you when it comes to your mission? Not only where you work, but what you'll be about. The platform with which you will be a light to others. Follow the light. Where is God calling you when it comes to a mate? Whether you're dating someone, or you're married, or even in your singleness. What is the new thing God's calling you into? Follow the light in those areas. You will never regret prioritizing and centering your life on the light of the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, Jesus, your audacious claims. And for whatever reason, I'm grateful today that you awakened uh, me and a community to follow you. And God, we fall short. And even then, I thank you that your light of forgiveness brings healing. I just want to give you a moment to just sit and let God speak to you. Who will be your master? What will be your mission? Who will be your mate? And how will you interact around the area of relationships? What will you, where is the light going? Jesus, not only do you define yourself, um, you define us. And you said in your most famous sermon that we are the light of the world. I pray for every person here that you would illuminate us so vividly that we could be what that temple was in your day, the Feast of Tabernacles, that radiant light over a dark city. You would use us, not because we're better, as a matter of fact, because we're so broken, once you illuminate us, it would point to your power. Oh God, I pray that we would follow you. And we'd obey what you put on our heart in that last minute of silence or the last 30 minutes I've been talking. Give us the courage. Thanks you've given us the community. And we pray this in your name. Amen. to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.